If you would open your Bibles or um, turn them on, as, as Paul says. Um, if you would stand to read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 12. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 12. I've titled my sermon, God's Gifts for Forgetful People. Um, I almost called it God's Gifts to Dumb People, um, but I decided to go for forgetful people. (laughs) Um, This is the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The purpose of my sermon today is to challenge you to have a higher view of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. I personally grew up with an an anemic view of these ordinances, and I always knew that these were important. I just didn't realize how important they really are. I didn't really know what they meant in its fullness. And you may be thinking, a sermon on baptism and the Lord's Supper on a New Year's Day. Um, maybe, maybe you should have preached on how to write the best New Year's resolutions or how to get me excited to lose weight. Um, you can find those. There's plenty of pastors preaching that kind of stuff on YouTube. So. so it is my hope that you will join me this morning in looking at what the Holy Scriptures have to say about the ordinances He instituted in what has been confessed through the centuries through the Christian church. You see, God from the beginning has used symbols and signs to communicate truths to people. He knows just how forgetful we are, and if I had titled differently, He knows just how dumb we can be. And therefore, in his, in his mercy, God has given us visible signs, tangible signs, so that we may look at those and see God's grace in them. 
For example, we have a tree in the Garden of Eden. The tree was a visual representation of God's law. And then we have in Genesis 9, verses 12 through 13 to 15. I'm going to read it. And then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am given to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. God says, I will put my bow in the cloud and it will be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring the cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And, and then he says, with a promise, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So see, I want you to see a pattern in the Old Testament. We have a sign of the rainbow in the sky, and along with it, there is a promise. God says, when I see it, I will remember my covenant, and I will not destroy the earth again. We have a symbol and a promise. We have a sign of the rainbow and a seal. And then we have an example of Abraham in Romans 4.11, when he says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. See the same pattern? There's a sign, there's a symbol, and along with it, there's a seal. There's a promise that God gave. And we'll get into that a little bit further on. And the last example of signs and, uh, signs and seals in the Old Testament comes from Exodus 12, 13. And we're all familiar with this story. He said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, that is Yahweh, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you um, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we have, in the Old Testament, physical symbols accompanied by promises. It says that when the angel of death would come about midnight, that he would see the blood on the doorposts, and Yahweh said, when I see the doorpost covered with blood, I will see it and I will spare you. A sign, the blood, and a promise, I will spare you. And in the same way, in the New Testament, we have signs that convey promises. And why should we think that Old Testament signs convey promises and New Testament signs would be void of them? Wouldn't the reality be much greater in the New Testament? So, my first point, what are these symbols and what is their purpose? The Lord has given us baptism and communion as holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. These were instituted by Christ to represent his benefits. What you will take this morning, communion, and hopefully what you have experienced Baptism. These are to be constant reminders of God's love and mercy towards us. 
And think about how many times Yahweh in the Old Testament showed grace to Israel over and over and over. And what did Israel do? They turned over to idols. Rejecting God, forgetting God who saved them. You and I are no better than Israel. We are just as forgetful as they were. We are no better than Israel complaining in the wilderness. We are so quick to forget God's goodness. And we run to see what good thing we can do for God in order to be justified in his eyes. Sometimes we forget the gospel of our Lord. We forget sometimes that we have been cleansed from all sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we seek to be right in his eyes by looking at our own works, looking at our own life. We might think, I read my Bible today, I prayed today, I went to church on New Year's Day. And sometimes we think that somehow we can be right in the eyes of the Lord by doing these things. Let me just tell you now in advance so you don't waste your time for the rest of your life. There is no good deed, good enough, you can do so God will be pleased with you. Except to believe in his only son who him sent into the world. And even this faith is not of ourselves but is a gift of God so that no one may boast. We're going to look at the first sign that he has given us in the New Testament and the New Covenant. And this is, what is baptism? And what is its purpose? I would have loved to have a little cards and just ask people, what is baptism and what is the Lord's Supper? I would just love to know the answers that, um, that you may have about that. Our Lord instituted this ordinance of baptism for the church when he said in Matthew 28... Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This 1689 Confession of Faith, which is what I'm using for my definitions this morning, says that baptism was ordained by Jesus Christ to those being baptized a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection. A sign of you being engrafted into him. A sign of the remissions of sins and of submitting yourself to God through Jesus Christ and to walk in newness of life. Um, I have lots of verses. I could have picked a lot more, but since my time is limited, I've picked just some of them. Acts twenty-two sixteen says, Why do you delay? Why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I ask you this morning, why do you delay? Why do you delay the sign, the gift of God of baptism? I say to you what the apostle said, rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name.
Baptism is a sign of our spiritual death and our spiritual life. Look at Romans 6.3. It says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the picture? That baptism, when you went into the water, you were dying along with Jesus Christ. And when you came up from the water, just as the Father raised Jesus from the dead, so he has given you new life and a new heart. Colossians 2.12 Having been buried with him in baptism, having died with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so you see that, we don't, we don't have a baptistry here today, but... Um, when you have seen people getting baptized, it is the perfect symbol, the perfect picture of somebody dying to their sins and then coming alive. It is a sign of you being anew in Christ. And now baptism is a sign of our union with Christ. Galatians 3, 26, 27. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is incredibly strong language of baptism. When you read these passages, if you do not read in the minutes context, you might believe that there is such thing as baptismal regeneration. Because the, the words are so powerful. Just listen to what it says. As many, as, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But if you, didn't, if you didn't read the verse before, you would be misled to believe that. It says, having buried with him in baptism... Uh, through faith. You're all sons of God through faith. There is faith and baptism always together. And so when you go into the water, you're identified with Christ, a symbol that Christ has given us of his righteousness given to us. And what an amazing statement from Paul. And baptism has been actually compared to the wedding ring. How many of you have a wedding ring with you this morning? A wedding ring. Baptism has been compared to the wedding ring. What does the wedding ring mean? It is a sign of fellowship. It is a sign of a covenant that has been made. And when you give the ring to your spouse, it is meant to be a sign of the commitment that you have just made. Say, hey, I take you as my wife. I take you as my husband. And the ring continues to be throughout your life a reminder 
a promise and a seal that you made to your spouse, saying, until death do us part. And this is, this is kind of what God in the Old Testament did with Abraham. When he gave the sign of circumcision, in a sense, he gave the, the wedding ring to Abraham as a promise of the righteousness he had by faith. The word, the word in Greek here, Romans 4.11, that I quoted before is sphragis. And the word seal here means that it is an engraved object used to make an image of soft clay or wax, like you have seen in pictures many times. Um, you see in the envelope and you see the wax seal. That is what the word means. Notice that this verse, Romans 4.11, um, does not say that baptism was a sign of his faith or that circumcision was a sign of his faith. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness he received by faith. It saddens me that the majority of evangelicals think that by being baptized, they're merely proving to the congregation and to God that they have decided to follow Jesus. In other words, I'm getting baptized so I can prove to you all that I am for real about the Christian faith. And that's not all, baptism does mean that, and it does do that, but that is not that all baptism is, or that that's all it does. Many Christians have turned baptism into something that God, that God is doing to you, into something that they are doing. And when God is baptizing you, in a way, it was as if God were saying, she is mine, he is mine, I love you, and here is a way to prove that I love you. This is a sign and a promise that I love you. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, question 69. How does holy baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? The answer. Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as the water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. And just, as, just in passing, every time I bring up catechisms, people think we're not Catholics. Why are you talking about catechisms? Um, catechisms are not just for Catholic people. Um, just because the Roman Catholic Church has a catechism, doesn't, they don't get to steal that from us. Um, it is from the beginning, catechism, it has been used to teach adults and children the Christian faith. From the beginning of the Christian faith. Um, for all of those who maybe grew up in, in catechism, in Catholic, Roman Catholic Church or something like that. What is the Lord's Supper? And this is the main, I, this is the main meat of the sermon today because as you can see, we will be taking the Lord's Supper this morning. 
our Lord himself instituted this ordinance of the Lord's Supper when he said in Matthew 26, 26, in the upper room, he said, they were eating. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So this ordinance is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death. Communion is also called in the New Testament the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, and the Eucharist. How many of you have heard the word Eucharist? Now, that, that Greek word, it only means thanksgiving. Again, another word, another thing that Roman Catholics have stolen from us. It's a biblical word, Eucharist. And it only means, uh, it just means thanksgiving. In order to understand what is happening in the institution of the Lord's Supper, we need to be able to look back at what happened in the past through the life of Israel. That is the Passover. So I would like to take you to Exodus twelve thirteen. The Lord's Supper does not happen in a vacuum. We must remember that when he was in the upper room, during the Passover meal, Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, which was meant to be, in a sense, the new Passover meal, with a new meaning. And we must remember that Yahweh, in the Old Testament, rescued the Israelites because they were slaves in the land of Egypt. During the last plague, again, the angel of death killed the firstborns of Egypt, but the Israelites were spared. And so God commanded a lamb without blemish to be slaughtered and that they would eat it and take some of its blood and put it on the doorpost so that God would see it and that they would be spared. And since this moment onward, the Passover was to be continued to be observed every year. You can say this is the most important rite for the Israelites. And it is during this night when Christ says, go into the upper room, find a room, and then, and, uh, and then the disciples find the room. And then he goes up there, and during the Passover meal, he's instituted the new covenant sign, the Lord's Supper. Except that this time, it's not the blood of a lamb, but it, this time it's going to be his own blood, the true lamb of God without blemish. 
And instead, this time, instead of passing over doorposts, he would pass over our souls and find us guiltless on account of his own sacrifice, on account of his own blood. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? We know what it is, but what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Why do we come here? The Supper is an act of remembrance and worship. 1 Corinthians 11:25. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So our Lord Jesus commanded that this be done so that in his church, his all-sufficient sacrifice may be remembered and honored so that we may not look anywhere else for our salvation and assurance, but that we may look at his blood and his body for salvation and sustenance and nourishment. And only here the salvation of the Lord can be obtained. Nowhere else. This is a reminder, perpetual reminder for, forget, for forgetful people. Also the same way as it is with baptism. Baptism is not merely a way of proving your faith to others, but it is in fact a way of God saying, I love you, here's a sign, there's a promise that I've that you have received righteousness, just like Abraham did. In the same way, when we come to the Lord's table, it's not just mere remembrance. We don't only, we're not just looking back to thousand years and say, thank you, Jesus, though we are doing that. That is true. We come to him. We come to the Lord's table, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we are feasting with Christ really, truly, personally, in this moment. On a night when he was betrayed, he commanded this to the disciples. He said, do this, eat of it, drink of it, all of you. He knew, you know, in 24 hours, he was going to be dead. Wouldn't the very next words you say be full of meaning if you know you're about to die? What if it was your last testament, your last will, your last words? Would you say, uh, tell my wife I forgot to, to, to take the garbage out? Or would you say something more meaningful, something full of truth and power? I, I wasn't saying that Christ had a wife. I was just saying something we would say, just to clarify. When we eat the bread and the wine, we are seated with Christ. It is as if we're dining with him in the heavenly places. We are feasting with Christ. And we are enjoying of all the benefits he accomplished for us on the cross. Amen. When we take the bread and the wine, or as we do here, a cracker and, and the juice, we are worshiping the triune God. We are worshiping Christ. It's an act of worship. It's not just remembrance. This is an act of worship. 
And through this, we give him thanks. That's why the word Eucharist was used for the Lord's Supper. Because it's a way of saying, thank you, Jesus. I have a short story. I personally visited a church in Missoula. I won't say the name about it about eight years ago. And uh, me and my wife entered the service, if you can call it that. Um, It was a coffee shop downtown that should tell you all you need to know about it. They were really trying to appeal to the younger generation. Um, And the part of communion uh, came about, and the pastor said, if you want to have the supper, it's back there um, by by the front door. And I looked back, and it was just in a little stand, a little basket. And there was, I don't even know what was, there must have been a sealed wine and a cup and a cracker. And he said, yeah, go back there if you want to take the supper and just eat, uh, grab it, sit down and eat it. So I looked behind me and, and there was the thing and I go grab it and I'm so confused. And see, I've always loved the Lord's Supper. I always look forward to the Lord's Supper, which is my favorite. If you, if you sing, I might afford to seize our God and have the Lord's Supper on the same Sunday, it's just the best Sunday that I can ever think of. And so I looked back and, and I was excited about it. And then I, I was confused. I wanted to take of it. I was confused. I came and sat down. The pastor never, did, never said what he meant. Never said, take it. Never said, drink. No instruction. Just said, eat it, continue with this, um, you know, coffee shop music. Nothing, something holy, something so sacred was treated as a snack. Some churches just take the Lord's Supper just to say they do it. And is this not what the Corinthians were doing when they were taking on the supper unworthily? They were treating it as mere food, leaving people behind. The poor people eat over there, the rich people eat over here. They're getting drunk. They're treating it as mere food. That was the sin of the first Corinthians. Some other churches maybe take it once every three months. Um, Some take it once a year. And can you imagine during the COVID lockdowns, a lot of people didn't go to church for a year. Didn't take it to supper at all. Some... I mean, some churches really don't want to take of it. And like, I'm just doing the Colombo thing. There's just one thing I don't understand. I just have one more question. I, I, I don't understand it. It's Christ said, do this. And we say, well, that means we don't have time for announcements or crafts. Or, well, we just don't have the time because we're playing that song when we repeat the chorus 400 times. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And we don't want to do it. Christ said, be baptized. And we don't want to do it. And like Colombo, there is just one thing I don't understand. How, did the early, how often did the early Christians eat the supper? Now, controversial. It's not really controversial. I'm here to solve the debate for all time today. 
Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Okay, there's the word, there's the teaching. The fellowship, okay, there was, there was food. To the breaking of the bread and prayers. Now, verse 46 says, daily, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Okay. It seems as if the very early Christians were doing it daily. But then we move on to Acts 20, verse 7. And it says, On the first day of the week, where we were gathered together to break bread, that is just an euphemism of um, the Lord's Supper. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. It is almost an undisputed fact of church history that the church fathers, that is the theologians after the death of the apostles, continue to have the supper every Lord's Day, every Sunday, the first day of the week. That's what the early church fathers did. And it seems like in verse 27, on the first day of the week, every time they gathered together, they were doing this. And that'll be my argument if you ask me, well, how often should we take of the supper? And I would say, well, the apostles did it weekly. The early church fathers did it weekly. That seems good enough to me. Now, some people don't want to do it weekly because they don't want it to lose its special place. Right? That, that's what I hear. I just don't want to do it too often because then it won't feel as special. Or maybe in that case, we should stop reading the Word of God every Sunday. Otherwise, it won't be as special. Maybe we shouldn't sing every Sunday. Otherwise, it won't feel as special. <laughs> but maybe I should stop there before I get into trouble. The Lord's Supper confirms our faith and nourishes our souls. The feast, the Lord's table, is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers. The confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ, death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way in I want you to hear this very clearly, very precise language. Those who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically, but spiritually. So when we say feeding on Christ, some people might roll their eyes and say, oh, we're not Catholics. We're saying we're feeding on Christ spiritually. Feeding on Christ benefits by faith. And we receive this. We will receive the benefits of Christ by faith this morning. Yet, the benefits of Christ are not automatic. Nor is it carnally. But it is spiritually by faith. Because we're the children of Abraham. 
were, ch- were the children of Abraham by faith, not by the mere eating of bread, were the children of Abraham by faith, not by baptism, but by faith, because we are the heirs, we're children of Abraham. And that's how he was justified inside of the Lord. One of my favorite passages, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that speaks so highly of the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, the word here for participation can be translated in a number of different ways. Sharing, fellowship. And when I look at this verse, there are some people who think that the only thing we're doing here is just mere memorial. We're just remembering. But look at what Paul says. The cup that we bless, are we not participating with Christ in Christ's blood? The bread, are we not participating in the body of Christ? This is incredibly high language. My last point, the supper proclaims the Lord's death. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Since the Reformation, both baptism and the Lord's Supper have been understood as visible words. Visible words. That is, truths of God's word in a visible, tangible, edible way. We can see the gospel of our Lord. We can eat the gospel of our Lord. We feel the gospel of our Lord when we're baptized. They're visible words communicating truth to us. The Apostle Paul said, you proclaim the Lord's death as often as you eat and drink the cup. It is a powerful thing because what we're doing today, it is a simple word, it's a simple thing, but it preaches the gospel. It exalts Christ, it proclaims his death, and it confirms and strengthens our faith. God gave us physical signs tangible symbols because we need them. You and I, we need these symbols. As I said in the beginning, because humans have the tendency to just forget, especially we have the tendency to forget when God is good to us. God gave us this means of grace so that we can taste his forgiveness, see his forgiveness. He didn't need to do that, but he wanted to. For the benefit, for the love of his church. 
Now I want you to think about all the ways that God is communicating the gospel to us. It is as if God were saying, the, gospel, uh, the word being read and preached, wonderful. But wait, there is more. Number one, we hear the word of God in the reading and the preaching. Preaching on the God's word. Number one, that's the gospel. Number two, we feel the waters of baptism as we're immersed. And in a sense, we feel as the water cleanses our body so that the Spirit washes away our sins. Unless, of course, we take you so that you can be baptized to Frenchtown Pond, then you will feel more dirty when you come out <laughs> than when you went in. You might, you might get a couple of diseases in there. And number three, we see the bread, we're seeing it, and then we're tasting it. We hear the word, we feel baptism, we see the gospel, and then we eat the gospel. You can smell the wine as well. It is the gospel that is communicated to us in almost in every way that you can think of. Because God knows just how prone to forget we are. And we need this nourishment. We need this strengthening. And that's why I love it. It is my favorite part of worship. It is the body of our Lord feeding our souls. We're feeding on Christ and his benefits. God in his great wisdom has decided to communicate great truths into what it may be appear unimportant. This is unimpressive means why water? We find it everywhere. We make coffee with it, we make tea, we go fishing in it. It's not very special. Water, we need it to survive. And, and you could say, well, that is a wonderful picture. We need it to survive. And in a sense, Spiritually, we need it to survive. And why, the bread and why the bread and wine? It's a rather common thing. There is bread in most of our homes and wine. You can, go, you can go at Albertsons and buy some wine. These are very common, and that is why these are called ordinary means of grace. They're not extraordinary. They're just simple. And this fits, fits exactly with the character of God. That he would use the common things of this world to shame their wives. God chose Israel not because they were great, but because they were small. God chose you and I because, in a sense, we're the worst the world has to offer. And in a sense, God chose these simple elements, water, bread, and wine, simple elements, insignificant elements, to communicate great, magnificent truths to us. God enjoys using common means, ordinary means to communicate great things. Christ used mud to heal the blind man. Did he need to use the mud? No. Of course not. But he enjoys using insignificant means 
to accomplish great things. I will read uh, the passage and then we'll pray. Psalm 103. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always contend with us. He will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, praise the Lord. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities, otherwise we'd be lost. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is, is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, well, how far is that? So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And we say thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have looked down upon us and and you have realized that we need means. We need to be able to see and feel and hear the truths of the gospel. And you have done so out of pure love, out of sheer grace. Lord, I pray that the words that were spoken this morning would be of encouragement for your sheep, and that uh, those who do not yet believe, they will realize the love that you have shown towards your people. May your name continue to be exalted as we continue this Lord's Day service. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.